we had a quick look at the opening verses of Colossians 3 on Easter Sunday, and we, we saw an incredible truth there. Uh, I don't know if you remember it. We learned there in the opening verses of Colossians 3 that we have already been raised. Anyone who's in Christ is not going to be raised. We are raised. Wow. That would take the rest of our lives to, to work out what that means and to, to live into it and live out of it. Look at the verses there. Set your minds on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. We're raised with him. He's seated. He's enthroned. He's the king. And now we're to live as raised citizens of the kingdom of God. We're going to be thinking about that this morning as we return to our Frontlines series let me remind you of our frontlines journey so far. Everyone has a frontline. That is a place where they work or where they do life and where they encounter people who don't yet know Jesus. In January, on the, on the first of our frontline Sundays, we had a go at identifying some of our frontlines and we, we said that we're a bit like red dots among a, a sea of other people who, who maybe don't yet know Jesus. And then what we did is we placed our red dots on a map of Bangor and of Northern Ireland. Uh, by the way, I've moved those maps there back in the vestibule on, on the notice board on the, the left-hand side as I look. Uh, so there's still a chance for you to place a dot to say where your front line is, where you live during the week, where, where you're living for Jesus and where he's using you. So please try and get a chance to do that if you haven't already done that. These maps, whenever you see them and you see where Hamilton Road people are during the week in Bangor and throughout Northern Ireland and beyond, they, they're a tangible reminder to us that we're, we're God's child not just on a Sunday and not just when we're in this building, but that we're equally God's child all over Bangor and beyond. Uh, and at every point during the week from Monday morning to Saturday evening, every bit as much as when we gather here just now. In February, on a second Frontline Sunday, we thought a, a little bit more about some of those places where God has put us. We said that he's with us wherever we are. Uh, and we, we delved a little bit deeper. We said we don't need to go looking for front lines. We don't need to artificially try and create these places, they already exist. What we need to do is to see the places where God's put us with, with fresh eyes. And we did, did that in a couple of ways. So one thing we did is we interviewed Claire. Uh, you might remember that. She talked a little bit about what she does between Sundays as both a classroom assistant in a school and as somebody who manages a, a, a property uh, for Airbnb. And then more recently with Aaron back with us, talking about what he's doing now that he's no longer a youth worker in the church, what he does this time tomorrow. Whenever we talk to a person about what they do this time tomorrow, we, we tend to put three questions before them. Tell us about God's presence with you. 
Talk us, tell us about some pressure that you face and tell us about his purposes with you or on your front line. So this morning on a third uh, Frontline Sunday, we're going to think together about how we can live for God's glory, whatever we do. Just before I come to, to think about Frontlines this morning, I'd like to tackle a question that you might have in your mind. Christoph, that stuff about us all having a Frontline, that, that's all very good. Um, but is it really appropriate for uh, a Sunday morning service? Is it really appropriate for us to be thinking of uh, as a, a sermon? If we're going to be thinking about our front lines, would we not be better doing that somewhere else in some other forum? It's a good question, and it's one that I recognize because I've grappled with it myself. The more I've thought about it, the clearer I've become that teaching about front lines or about a discipleship that takes us into the whole of our real lives isn't only permissible, it's, it's vital. It's absolutely vital. If I want to teach you the whole Bible, then I need to teach you about real and ordinary and everyday life. <clears throat> the thing that's persuaded me most of all about that is, is actually just reading the Bible. As I've read the Bible, I've become more and more convinced that we need to talk a lot about our real everyday lives. So, for example, last month in, in our book by book, some of us took time to read the book of Deuteronomy. About half of the book of Deuteronomy is made up of, of laws, but they're laws that govern things like employment and finance leadership and legal systems, crime and punishment, to mention but a few, pretty much every area of life that you can conceive, God has laws for how his people should live there. It, we immediately get this sense, oh, God seems to care about everyday life. And, and this isn't just a, an Old Testament thing either. So uh, we've just finished our studies in the Sermon on the Mount where we've had Jesus teaching his disciples about very everyday things like anger and adultery, divorce and revenge and, and so on. Whenever Paul writes his letters to the churches that he's founded, he, he, he has very rich and sometimes very challenging theology in most of those letters. But he also talks to the people about their everyday lives. He talks about family life and employment, politics, and society. So the reason that I will teach about everyday life and about what I call whole life discipleship and life on the front lines is very simple in the end. It's because I want my teaching to be the teaching that, that God's word teaches. I want to teach you what God's word teaches. I said a moment ago that this morning we're going to think about whatever we do. To get us warmed up, we're going to watch another of the wee frontline videos that we have used in the, the previous two sermons in this series. This one takes the form of an unspoken prayer. So we see our four characters uh, going about their daily tasks, uh, and they remind us that so often it's through what we do 
that God does what he wants to do in this world. Notice how the characters, they've come to recognize the value of, of their tasks in the kingdom of God. And notice too how they're asking God for his help as they go about their everyday work. Father, help me do good today. I want to shape this place to your design. Help me see the value my work has to you. May I model your kindness and patience. So that you are recognised. May they know Jesus through my presence. May they see your light as I share mine. Give me your joy and self-control. So that your warmth touches those I meet. Help me to be generous. Quick to put others first. Sharing clearly your love and grace. Give me words to speak about you. And courage to stand for justice and truth. Whatever the day brings. In my humanity. Weakness. Breakthrough. Let my life overflow with you. As I said when we began, um, we're in Colossians 3 today. We looked at that passage on Easter Sunday. We realized that we're raised citizens of the kingdom of God. As Paul moves through this chapter, he tells us how we should live. If you have it open before you, just skim with me before we come to our reading. In verses 5 to 11, he talks about things that we need to put to death, things that need to stop in the life of a disciple of King Jesus. In verses 12 to 14, he talks about new clothes that we need to put on, things that need to grow in us as we follow King Jesus. And it's as, as he's been leading us on this journey of, of learning to live the resurrected life that we come to verse 15. Elian's going to come and read our passage for us just now. Colossians 3, verse 15 to 24. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children or they may become discouraged. Slaves, 
Obey your earthly masters into everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you, and to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as working for the Lord, not for men. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. Thanks, Elaine. In his letter, Paul is telling these believers in Colossae what kind of a community God is calling them to be, and he, he makes it clear that it's not an inward-focused thing. Their, their daily lives are to be marked by love and kindness and compassion in their places of work and in, in their relationships. Our, our circumstances are not the same as those in Colossae to whom Paul is writing, but we're called to, to live in the same way uh, as we follow Jesus, just the same way as these early followers in Colossae were called to do. We're called to work out our commitments to the Lord in real Monday to Sunday lives, in all the relationships that we have with countless other people. Paul wants us to see that whatever we do, is our service to Jesus. I want you to think with me, imagine for a moment that you're one of the, the first people getting to hear this letter. Depending on how much you know about the, the New Testament church, you may or may not feel able to do that. If I tell you that most of the people gathering in Colossae who hear this letter read to them are probably slaves. They're servants in a, a larger household. These slaves in these households, they were the, the, the machinery, if you like, of the Greco-Roman Empire. They kept the whole empire going. Uh, they're people who, I, I imagine, carried very great workloads, but had only very meager rewards, and that have had very little control over their own lives. I think it would have been very tempting for the average member of First Colossae hearing this letter read to imagine that their daily work is entirely insignificant. I, I think it's very easy to imagine them thinking of themselves as small cogs in a huge machine or an anonymous number in a huge corporation. When they looked in the mirror on a Monday morning, they, they were haunted by questions like, does any of this really matter? Does any of this matter to God? Maybe they were thinking those kind of thoughts just like we do. I can remember doing work uh, at one point that I didn't think mattered to God. It was in the mid-1990s, I was a young graduate uh, working as a trainee chartered accountant at Coopers and Librand, part of what is now PricewaterhouseCoopers. The work was clearly important. Important clients generating important revenues, doing important work. It was, seemed so important to so many of the people involved. I just didn't see that any of it, or my part in it, was important to God. You see, I'd grown up with a, a sacred, secular 
divide? The sacred secular divides the idea that you can draw a line somehow through the, the, the wide range of human life and you can put everything on one side of that line or on the other. Some stuff is sacred. Sundays in church, praise and prayer, ministers and missionaries, that, that's all the, the sacred stuff that, that sits on this side of the line. The other side of the line, we have the secular stuff, school and work and profits and loss and art and leisure and Monday to Saturday. Everything that's not on the, the sacred side then necessarily ends up on the, on the secular side. This is the sacred stuff that God's interested in. And over here, we have the secular stuff that God doesn't care about, or at least not very much. This view of things really affected how I lived and how I went about my work. If it doesn't matter to God, or at least not very much, then it shouldn't matter to me or can't matter to me, or at least not very much. I'd, I find myself getting out of work, this place that God didn't care about very much, as fast as I could so that I could go to the place that God did care about, to come to a place like this, to be involved in church gatherings or, or to be involved in church leadership, the things that God really did care about. So my thinking was dominated by the sacred secular divide. And although I had an idea that the Christians were supposed to be Christ-like, whatever that meant in a 1990s corporate environment, I really hadn't grasped that I was called to live for God's glory, wherever I was, whatever I was doing. I didn't know that I had a front line. I didn't know that God had called me there to make all the difference in the world. And if anyone at church was teaching me that, I certainly wasn't learning it. I wasn't getting it. Folks, and that's what makes Paul's teaching here such dynamite. In this passage, Paul blows up the sacred-secular divide. I, I thought at first that he just took away the divide that's between them, but, but he does more than that. He removes these categories altogether. For Paul, there is no secular. Every inch of God's creation is sacred. In mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis warns us. He warns us against writing off any part of God's good creation as secular. He says there's no good in trying to be more spiritual than God. God never meant man to be a purely spiritual creature. That's why he used material things like bread and wine to put new life into us. We may think this rather crude and unspiritual. God does not. He invented eating. He likes matter. He invented it. Lewis is simply reaffirming what Paul's saying here. There is no secular. Everything is sacred. By the way, if you'd like to take some more time to think about the sacred-secular divide and the impact that it has on our discipleship, you might want to revisit a piece of teaching that we gave here about six or seven months ago. We were teaching Genesis in our Sunday morning 
sermons, but we did a couple of spin-off Sunday evenings, a Genesis Extra, and there's one on the 3rd of October, uh, that Sunday evening service where we, we spent the whole evening thinking about the sacred-secular divide. And I'd encourage you to, to go back to that and to listen to it if you want to understand this more fully. We've also put a, a great PDF called The Great Divide, published by LICC. We've put that in our church resources. If you go and look, you can find that and read that this afternoon. Okay, back to our passage. Notice for a second that the, the clause that we're using as the title for this sermon is twice in this passage, whatever you do. It comes the first time in verse 17. And it seems to be referring there to whatever we do in, in worship services in our gathered church. Verse 15 talks about how we're members of one body. Verse 16 refers to the word of Christ and the singing of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So that might reinforce the idea that we've grown up with, many of us, that whatever we do that matters to God is the sacred stuff. It's the, the Sunday stuff and the church stuff. But look at the second time Paul uses the phrase, verse 23. This time the context of the everyday working environment that these household slaves would have found themselves in. The kitchen and the garden, the staff room or the store. Whatever you do, whether it's in your gathered worship or in your scattered everyday life, it all matters. Whatever you do. I want you to notice just one more thing in this passage. Notice what Paul says about the whatever you do in verse 17. Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. What does that mean, to do something in the name of the Lord Jesus? When we do something in the name of Jesus, we're acting as Jesus' ambassadors. It's, it's with his name on us. We're his representatives. It's as if we're going to work with some workwear on, with, with Jesus somehow written across the back of our boiler suit. He's, he's the boss. He's the company we represent. He's who we work for. He's the one whose reputation we carry as we go about our everyday life. I can do all my work in the name of Jesus. I can plumb a sink in Jesus' name or coach a team in Jesus' name. I can bathe a patient in Jesus' name. I can do all of these things representing Jesus. Folks, whenever I preach like this, a question that's always before me is, is this possible? Can we actually do everything for Jesus? Can this actually be done? Well, let, let me get the conversation started. While I was at Regent College studying to become a minister, I was introduced to Brother Lawrence. Now, I wasn't actually introduced to him because he died in 1691, so that just wouldn't have worked out. I was introduced to him in his, his writings. I met him in a book that he'd written. Brother Lawrence was a, 
In his mid-50s, Lawrence became a lay brother in a monastic community in Paris. He wasn't even a monk. He was just a, a guy in the infrastructure of that particular monastery. He worked in the kitchen, and he called himself, he had a lovely name for himself. He said he was a servant of the servants of the Lord. He, he didn't even take the name of a servant of the Lord. He said, I'm, I'm a servant of the servants of the Lord. No task was too trivial for Lawrence. Whatever he was doing, he, he practiced, he said, the presence of God. And he was able to transform his mundane Christian or, or, or kitchen chores into to glorious experiences of heaven. So as he's washing the dishes, he's enjoying the presence of God. As he's peeling the spuds and scrubbing the floor, he's enjoying the presence of God. It's an idea that had a huge impact on me. I, I think once I learned about this, once I heard about this, I, I never saw life quite the same ever again. This idea that I can do whatever I do, practicing the presence of God. Let me tell you a little bit about how that plays out in my life. I find it easiest, actually, I can see why Lawrence would have been able to write this, because it's easiest to do with some of the, the more mundane jobs that we do, like washing the dishes and peeling the spuds. You know those boring, repetitive jobs? I, I used to be the kind of person who would get a bit cross about having to do those jobs, because I was better than that. What am I doing, washing the dishes or doing whatever I'm doing. But then I realized, well, this is a wonderful gift, this time when my head and heart can be offered to the Lord. So I find that I don't get quite so angry or resentful about these jobs anymore because they give me an opportunity for, for prayerful reflection. So for example, if I'm hanging out the laundry, I get to pray for the member of my family whose laundry I'm hanging out. So in Nepal, they have prayer flags. In our home, we have prayer pants. You, you pray for the person whose laundry you're hanging out. Whenever I'm setting the table for a family meal or tidying up after guests have left our home, that's an opportunity to remember those who are coming or have been with us and to hold them for a moment before God. So as I say, I find it easier to do with those very routine, everyday things. Where I found it harder is to, to practice God's presence whenever I'm 100% concentrated on the things I have to do. Some things require 100% of my, my brain's not very big, so I go to 100% very, very quickly. I can't multitask, I have to give myself to it. So if I'm writing a sermon or doing something complex on a software or writing a difficult email, there would have been a time I, I felt, well, God's not in that. I, I, I don't feel able to practice his presence in that. I had a bit of a breakthrough. I'm just explaining this to you so you might be able to practice God's presence in your life. I had a bit of a breakthrough with that a few years ago. I remember grappling with it. That this I felt bad that there were long parts of my day and I felt Lord, you're not in this. But I, re I remember this sense of God saying, oh, don't, don't worry about that, Christoph. Don't, don't worry about it. Just invite me into it anyway. 
So I remember having this sense that God gave me a prayer. Uh, it's, it's like he just wanted me to invite him into that stuff too. So I, I acted on that impulse. I typed, a, typed just a, a phrase, let's do this together. And I stuck it behind my monitor wherever I'd be doing this more detailed, more, uh, more demanding work. And it became a prayer for me as I sit down to work. Whatever I do, Lord, let's do this together. I'm not, I'm not closing you out of this. Because I'm answering emails or because I'm dealing with difficult things or because it's all very technical, I believe you can still be in this. Lord, whatever I do, let's do this together. Folks, I want you to take a phrase with you and just try to take it from this Bible passage from Colossians 3. If, if you take this phrase and remember it and chew over it the rest of this week, I'll be a happy preacher. Okay? Whatever you do. Whatever you do. Whatever you do. Just take that, hold it in your mind as much as you can and as long as you can and learn to see every moment that he gives you as a time when he's with you and he, when he wants to use you for his glory. Let's pray. Lord, as we will scatter after this service and return to our front lines. We thank you for the, the many, many, many opportunities we'll have to do good in the world. Whatever our tasks are this week, wherever we are, we pray that you'll work through them and that they'll bear fruit for your kingdom. May we do all things attending to your presence that's with us and with a heart set on working at all of them for you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.